BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, Steve Bannon gets totally banned from Twitter for calling for the beheading. The beheading, yes, and putting their heads on pikes of FBI Director Christopher Wray. Now, it used to be that calling for the assassination of a senior official of the United States government was a... It looks like Bill Barr is not going to go after him about that. And that they should behead Anthony Fauci. Honest to God, Steve Bannon is tweeting this. The guy who was uh, arrested for fraud on the multi-million dollar yacht of a Chinese billionaire. Meanwhile, Louis DeJoy apparently has uh, uh, screwed up at least 150,000 ballots. This from the Washington Post yesterday. The headline, U.S. Postal Service processed 150,000 ballots after Election Day, jeopardizing thousands of votes. Election Day is Tuesday, and when you're delivering the ballots on Wednesday, yeah, there's a few states where those get counted. I think it's 19 states, but the rest of them, no, they don't get counted. More than 12,000 in five of the states that have yet to even be called for Trump or Biden. Despite assurances from Postal Service leaders that agency officials were conducting daily sweeps for misplaced ballots, the mail service acknowledged in a court filing Thursday that thousands of ballots had not been processed in time and that more ballots were processed Wednesday, the day that it doesn't matter, more ballots were processed Wednesday than on Election Day. And this was not a conspiracy? This was not a plan where Trump and DeJoy and apparently whoever helped write Trump's speech yesterday, what was it, Stephen Miller, he's the speechwriter, sat down and said, okay, how do we split apart the Biden voters from the Trump voters? Well, let's do it by who's willing to go to the polls. We'll let this virus rip through the population for the next six months. While you, Lewis, are going around dismantling high-speed sorting machines, I'll go out there and tell people you can't trust mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots are bad. Don't request a mail-in ballot. Don't send in a mail-in ballot. Don't get a mail-in ballot. Don't mail in your ballots at all. Be sure to vote in person. That's what I'll tell people. And Joe Biden will say, hey, you can trust the mails. The mail postal service is a great American institution. And meanwhile, you, Lewis, you're, you're kneecapping that great American institution. I want you to rip out over 600 of these multi-million dollar sorting machines. And don't just, like, unplug them. 
pull them out in the backyard, back lot or the parking lot of the local post office and have them ripped down into pieces and don't even bother selling them as spare parts. I realize there's a huge market for that, but just put them in the dumpster because that's what happened. Be sure you do this in all the swing states. Hit the swing states really, really hard, and then do it around the rest of the country. You, know, you should be able to pull maybe 200 of them out of the swing states, but we've got to hit you know, 600, so it looks like this is just business as usual. Could it be? I have no proof. I only have circumstantial evidence. More or less shared variations on this with you several times in the last two weeks. But it's becoming more and more obvious to me that this is actually probably close to, I mean, we'll never know for sure, but close to what might have actually happened. Just imagine it's about a year ago, and the polling that is being done inside the Trump campaign shows that there's no way that Donald Trump's going to win this election. Now, yeah, the polling was off, apparently, in this election, and there may be something to, you'll recall, uh, Warren Matofsky back in 2004 was talking about why even his exit polls were off on that election. When exit polls are off, I get a lot more nervous. But anyhow, he came up with this theory of the shy Bush voter, that George Bush was such a disgrace to America. He had lied us into an illegal war that had led to the deaths of thousands of Americans, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis destabilized the Middle East, done enormous damage to the country, that people were just embarrassed to tell pollsters in 2004 that they voted for his re-election. That may be what happened this time, that there were some people who just thought, okay, or, you know, we're going to own the pollsters or something. I don't, you know, I don't know. That is something that we're going to have to figure out over the next few months, and I have no doubt that we will. But let's just say that Trump is sitting down with his people, his campaign people, and they're saying, you know, there's no way you can win. And he's like, well, we got to figure out how to separate the Biden voters from the Trump voters so that we can count them separately. Now, this is something that has been done quite successfully. This is something Brian Kemp did very successfully in Georgia in the 2018 election when he stole the, the election from Stacey Abrams, is they separated out the probable Democratic voters because they were largely African-American. There's a lot of African-Americans in Georgia in general and in Atlanta in particular. He just did this voter purge that knocked hundreds of thousands or at least 100,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in Georgia. But that's kind of become an old strategy. So how do we do What's the new way? What's some new way that we can come up with to prevent the votes of Democrats from being counted? And Trump says, well, I've got an idea. We've got this virus. That, let's say that they had this meeting in March. This virus is coming along, or actually it might have been after April 7th. Who knows? I, you know, we, we have to figure out the timeline here. Trump says, uh, you know, why don't I talk about, you know, go out and say to my people, to Trump voters, don't trust the mail. Don't vote by mail. Because the Democrats are telling everybody to vote by mail to be safe. And then we'll have the Republican legislatures in Michigan and Pennsylvania make sure that the mail-in vote can't even start to be counted until the day after the election. In Wisconsin, I mean, you know, or at the very worst, the day of the election, so that the mail-in votes aren't actually tabulated for a couple of days. And Pennsylvania, the legislature in Pennsylvania just did that brilliantly, right? 
So that way, all the same-day votes will come in on Tuesday, and they'll be for Trump, and I can declare victory. And then as the other votes come in, it'll look like you know people are trying to flip the election. This is essentially the 2000 strategy. When George W. Bush's cousin, working at Fox News, called the election for George W. Bush, after all the other networks had called it for Al Gore, or hadn't called it at all, but said, you know, it's looking like it's going to be Gore. And he's like, oh, no, it's Bush. And suddenly it's like, whoa. And Gore concedes. And then Gore unconcedes. And you remember how that all worked out. And it got thrown to the Supreme Court. So if this is the case, if the speech that that Trump gave yesterday had been planned for eight months, and they were using the coronavirus as a tool, as an electoral tool, let the virus run rampant throughout the country for the next eight months to scare people away from voting in person, except for my people. My people, I'll tell them, oh, don't worry, the virus is not that big a deal. They'll show up and vote in person. If that was the case, he let a quarter million people or nearly a quarter million people die in order to win the White House? He sat down with Louis DeJoy and conspired to slow down the mail, which was a really important part of this, and conspired to slow down the mail just to win the election, kneecap the poster. By the way, that's a federal crime, messing with the mail. And it's a double federal crime when you do it in the context of an election. There are specific laws about messing with ballots in the U.S. mail, in addition to the regular laws about messing with the U.S. mail. Now, I will concede at this particular moment, we don't have a smoking gun. There's no person standing up going, yeah, this is what we did. But if you simply look at what happened, could it all have been a coincidence? I suppose it's possible. I mean, you know, it's, it's possible, but what do you think? Tom Harvin here with you, and on the line with us is Dr. Justin Frank, the psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, and the author of Trump on the Couch, along with Obama on the Couch and Bush on the Couch. His Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD. Donald Trump and his lawsuits. He's had thousands of lawsuits as a business person. Now he's suing to stop vote counts all around the country. What does this tell us about him? Well, it tells us, first of all, that he has what's called arrested development. He psychologically has not been able to develop into having a complex way of thinking. So he uses particular ways of resolving problems, which involve attacking reality, attacking other people, using his money to bully people. It's a basic defense that ultimately cannot mature. So most of us, we develop more sophisticated defenses and ways of coping with anxiety as we get older. We use humor, ways of coping, but he has not. He essentially attacks reality because he has an unconscious that's very deep hatred of reality. That's a actually a psychotic part of a personality. What we've seen with him during his presidency and before all these lawsuits are what is the constant threat. The circumstances, the subject of the lawsuits are always different. 
their whatever is going on at the time. But the process of the lawsuits have to do with his basic, fundamental, pathological uh, coping mechanism. Trump remains the same. It's an omnipotent defense. It's a defense of feeling, you are not right. I'm going to get what I want. This is what I need. This is what I have to have. And he has always been this way since he was a child. And you can see it all the way through his growth. He's grown without developing Mm -hmm. psychologically at all. So his world is very constricted into good and bad, black and white. And these defenses are very primitive. So the basic thing that's behind the lawsuit is an attempt to attack and destroy reality and to deny it and to deny its existence. It's also a way of evading any responsibility, which we've seen in him, you know, always blaming other people, always evading responsibility. But the other part is that it reflects at another unconscious level in my experience in getting to know him through this book. He has a deep need to be rescued by somebody. And in this case, and he denies it to himself. So he goes on the attack. But unconsciously, he's always being rescued by lawyers. So on the one hand, he appears to be attacking, but he's actually having other people save him and rescue him. At the deepest level, that was originally his father. Roy Cohn helped him codify that way of acting so he could really attack and look like he was an attack dog when actually all along they were holding his hand and they were rescuing him. That's interesting that you got to his father, because that was going to be my question is, you know, his father, on the one hand, was not a nurturing father. I mean, that's fairly well established. And and Mary Trump talks about this in her book. And when Donald got, you know, his ADHD or whatever it was, got bad, they just sent him off to pretend military academy to a school that, you know, where they pretended to be in the military and they wore uniforms. But on the other hand, when his casino in New Jersey was failing, His father walked in with a million dollars in cash, bought chips, in other words, handed the money over to the casino, and then walked out with the chips, you know, which was probably $30 worth of chips. So his father has rescued him. And and it turns out, I mean, you know, his big thing during the campaign was my dad gave me a million dollar loan, which I had to pay back. We discovered when the New York Times did a deep dive on the whole state and how it shook out that Trump had actually walked off with almost $450 million of his daddy's money. And this was back in the 80s when that amount of money would probably be worth seven or eight hundred million, maybe even a billion dollars today. So his dad really was rescuing him repeatedly. Is that is he seeing oh, the courts as essentially a father figure or a power figure that can well, save him? Well, he's courts are not going to rescue him, but his lawyers are going to rescue him. Uh, his lawyers are like his dad. His dad came to his rescue and gave him money. Now his lawyers come to his rescue and give him power and force, and they help him defeat whoever the bad guys are for him. But basically, you're right. The lawyers unconsciously are like his father, who he has never gotten over this need to be rescued. And it's very deep. You're right on the money there. And that's what he did. He was rescued around the casinos. He was always saved by his father. And yet at the same time, he was also sent away by his father. The reason he was sent away to military school, though, was because his behavior was out of control, because his father, who was actually very smart, and very tyrannical, both, said to himself, I cannot cope with my son. 
he is too much for me. His behavior is out of control. He is dangerous to his siblings. He is dangerous at school, and he has to go to some form of a military academy where they set limits for him. And that there, even though it was a sort of pseudo military academy, one of the things they did was he became very neat. He made his bed. They insisted on organization and structure, and he did those things. So he learned how to temper his rage and focus it a little bit more. But the impulsiveness has remained, and his need to destroy an attack is constant. His father could never control that, so he tried to temper it. Donald actually learned to try to do certain things behind his father's back still, even as an adult. But whenever they were caught, whenever he was caught, he just gave in. His father was very controlling, very powerful, and yet at the same time was his lifeline to any kind of success. So if Donald Trump is saved by his father over and over and over again through his early life, yes, we see in the election of 2016, if the allegations of our federal Justice Department, of the FBI and the Justice Department are correct, Vladimir Putin saved him in that election yes. and made him president. That's, and that's right. thus he goes to Helsinki and spends two hours holding hands in private with Putin and then comes out and says, you know, Putin's wonderful. Our intelligence agencies are full of crap. That's and, right. and is so it seems like that's kind of an extension. And Putin has become his father's surrogate. But now it looks like Putin has kind of cut him loose. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he's just pretending to. And is he turning to other people? I mean, Jared Kushner had to go to the Middle East to get his billion dollars to save his butt. It looks like Donald was involved in that. What's the dynamic? I mean, if that if that father save me dynamic was playing out large in the 2016 election, how is that playing out in this election? We just have a minute till we well, have a hard break, Dr. It's Frank. Really, it's complicated, but it's the same dynamic. The dynamic is that's why he had to have extensive rallies. The rallies become like saving people. Those people who he seduces and charms with his comments and his anger, unconsciously, they are saving him and they're protecting him. They're not doing it financially, but they will do it through voting, and they will make him feel stronger and more like a man. He has to do that or else he's lost. So now that he can't do the rallies and he's being losing the presidency, he's sitting and tweeting, but he's also pretty much in his room watching uh, the news. This is a person who needs to be saved. And he came across as a savior when he was trying to save the people who were abandoned by the, the coastal elites. But he was also unconsciously saving himself and getting them to save him. Remarkable. Dr. Justin Frank is a book, Trump on the Couch. It's brilliant. Justin Frank, MD, his Twitter handle. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Amelia in Seattle. Hey, Amelia, what's up? Hi, Tom. So I'm for the purple people, and I never hear about it. The purple people are blue and red make purple. The hurt people become purple. And I look at our society, and I see that we focus so much on allowing people who are the descendants of narcissists and the descendants of people with traumatized slave syndrome. We put in the hands in their hands these important priority decisions about who our leaders should be and what's best for our nation when we haven't 
for ourselves. I'm saying that people, human beings in the United States, are all descendants of people with sicknesses. That white, black, and in between, myself, I'm the one in between, I represent both categories. That all of I am descended of people who are sick on both sides in different ways. And what I don't hear when we talk about allowing white or black people to vote for anyone is what is their health? What is their sobriety? What is their sanity? It makes us look like there's no way to determine that, Amelia. You know, mental health tests on people before they vote. That's Stalinism. My actual point is that I'm listening for when we as a nation start to more clearly define what is needed on a mental health scale, how we actually define and respond to a people across the board, not leaving white people out either, because white people don't show up well for black people when they themselves are also not healthy. So there needs to unilaterally be research and a prioritization of the mental health of our country and acknowledging that we are all descendants of slave syndrome individuals and narcissists, and it places us in an unsober position. And when we think we're going to get outcomes that make sense, it seems that we're more the crazy people to think that we could get sane outcomes in a country that is overall culturally still somewhat insane, if not at least hurt enough to the point of a lack of what I call emotional sobriety. Now, of course, there are exceptions, but by and large, as as an educator of color in this society, What I see is a sickness that isn't being addressed, and I see division constantly allowing people to point at one another and say, you're the most sick, you're the most sick, and you should be doing this or that, when in fact to understand mutually each other's sickness from a place of... Don't you think it would be better to start out by trying to systemically cure the problem at the level of systems, in other words, reparations, you know, let's, let's, let's bring African Americans and other minority groups up to the level of white people and try a healing, I mean, like South Africa, you know, and not necessarily a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but something on that order, try to repair that damage, you know, yes, give individuals widespread access to mental health facilities, mental health treatment and pay for it, make that part of Medicare for all as part of Bernie's plan. But shouldn't we be addressing this at the level of society rather than the individual? Well, I'm an example of what happens when you give a person of color the same opportunities as a person not of color. I am living proof. And so I speak from experience, knowing that if mental health is prioritized and if we don't allow ignorance to take over, we end up with intelligent people who see the world as a family and work for that family. I got it. Chris in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hi, uh, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate all your work. People like you make me want to keep going and believe in humanity. In any event, I was wondering what you thought of terror management theory as an explanation why so many white Americans vote against their own interests. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It was based on Ernest Becker's, I think, Pulitzer Prize winning book, Denial of Death. And in other words, that people have a subconscious, at least a subconscious awareness that they will not live forever. And one way to transcend that is by identifying with something greater than they that will probably continue. And in this case, I guess it would mean, you know, the United States, the idea of exceptionalism, the idea of white supremacy, the cultural idea that our values are, if you will, better than others. And therefore, um, with this subconscious awareness that and death and denial of death is a priority, that would take precedent over perhaps logical thought. 
That's a very real possibility, Chris. That's uh, that's the sort of thing Justin Frank would would be the expert on. But uh, that's a very very real possibility. That's fascinating. Ernest Hemingway once said, "Artists are the only true immortals because the the work that they create lives on beyond them." Chris, thanks a lot for the call. And welcome back to our Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green, the subtitle Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. This is from the afterword, the very last chapter. It's titled Kali Yuga, which in Hinduism is when the earth goes into a phase of destruction. In the shell-shocked aftermath of the election, President Obama, looking shaken, appeared in the White House Rose Garden to deliver public remarks intended to project a sense of calm. A sense, really, that the basic stability of our country remained intact. Sun is up, Obama said. I know everybody had a long night. I did as well. Had a chance to talk to President-elect Trump last night, about 3.30 in the morning, I think it was, to congratulate him on winning the election. End of quote. The next day, when the two men appeared together in the Oval Office, it felt as if the world had slipped through the looking glass. Trump quickly named Bannon his chief White House strategist. Republicans controlled every branch of government. With Trump's ability to defy every political norm, anything seemed possible. Who could argue otherwise after what had just transpired? And yet, within days of his inauguration, Trump's White House was plunged into chaos and scandal, from which it has not recovered and may never. Bannon, the imaginative reconceiver of U.S. politics, hung streams of paper listing Trump's promises from the walls of his West Wing office. His strategy, as always, was to launch furious attacks this time to, quote, shock the system, end quote, and rapidly reorient the federal government in a more nationalist direction. He called this, with what I took to be intentional irony, a shock and awe approach to asserting Trump's power. But Trump's flurry of activity quickly ran into problems. There was his executive order, sprung a week after his inauguration, banning immigrants from seven majority Muslim countries, which set off nationwide protests and was blocked by the courts. His firing two weeks later of National Security Director Michael Flynn for contacts with the Russians. The collapse of his first major legislative initiative, a bill to repeal Obamacare. His firing of FBI Director James Comey. And the swift descent of the West Wing into a viper's nest of backstabbing and leaks. This quick turn toward a crack-up was hardly unforeseeable or even altogether surprising. But it contrasted sharply with the success of a candidate who had dominated his opponents, shaped news coverage and shown himself to be all but impervious to the forces that overwhelm other politicians. Bannon, whose wild gambits in the campaign had invariably paid off, seemed to run out of magic tricks when Hillary Clinton was no longer a target. The government wasn't as malleable to Trump and Bannon's aggressions as the Republican Party and the cable news channels had been, and they found themselves consistently thwarted and undermined by the courts, by right-wing hardliners in Congress, by their own inexperience and Trump's errant tweets, and by the bureaucracy they were now overseeing. The crises these failures precipitated in the White House cost Bannon much of his influence and soon threatened Trump's presidency. While still early in his term, the possibilities Trump's most ardent supporters once imagined for his presidency already seemed to be mostly foreclosed. I think there are three main reasons why Trump's administration has so quickly fallen into disorder and confusion. Number one, Trump thought being president was about asserting dominance. Just after he'd locked up the GOP nominations, Trump said something to me that crystallized his view of politics and explains, to my mind, much of his subsequent difficulties. Quote, I deal with people that are very extraordinarily talented people, he told me. 
I deal with Steve Wynn. I deal with Carl Icahn. I deal with killers that blow these politicians away. It's not even the same category. This, he meant politics. This is a category that's like 19 levels lower. You understand what I'm saying? Brilliant killers. Trump was equating politics with business and the presidency with the job of being a big shot CEO, a killer. He filled the upper ranks of his administration with people of a similar mindset. Gary Cohn, Wilbur Ross, Steve Bannon, aggressive, domineering men accustomed to getting their way by dint of their position. None had government experience, nor did many others in the West Wing. So none anticipated the problems this approach to governing would cause. Trump's self-conception as the all-powerful apprentice boss blinded him to a fundamental truth of the modern presidency, that the president needs Congress more than the Congress needs the president. Trump's domineering instincts serve him poorly, since most members of Congress are secure in their jobs and accountable mainly to their own constituents. And it backfired disastrously when Trump fired Comey after he refused to submit to a pledge of loyalty to his boss. Number two, Trump ran against the Republican Party, Wall Street, and Paul Ryan, but then took up their agenda. Populists often struggle to govern, but Trump scarcely attempted to lead the populist revolution that he promised. In May, he told me he would transform the Republican Party into a workers' party. But while he kept voicing populist sibyleths, the legislative agenda he took up was the standard conservative fare pushed by Paul Ryan. During the GOP primary, Trump has shrewdly sensed its weak point, Ryan's desire to finance tax cuts for the rich by cutting programs like Social Security and Medicaid armed the party's white, blue-collar base. Trump told me he'd made this point to Ryan directly. He said, quote, There's no way a Republican is going to beat a Democrat when the Republican is saying, we're going to cut your Social Security, and the Democrat is saying, we're going to keep it and give you more. The book is Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, let's see here. Uh, Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? Well, Mr. Hartman, I want to tell you that I want to bring a little sobriety to the understandable reverie in the country, I guess. Uh, not reverie, but you know what I mean. I mean, uh, there are those of us on a Elation. certain side of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, okay. You said that, I did. But I do want to say this, that when uh, Mr. Trump did his White House briefing at the White House briefing room, I am a person that has, for all kinds of reasons, survival and all other things, looked at closely at body language my whole life. And I saw a broken man. His shoulders yeah. were drooping. He did not have the starch 
and his shorts that he normally has. There wasn't the bluster. And it's really weird, Tom. Not that I felt sorry for him at all, because I can't, you know, I absolutely despise him and what he stands for. But I've always said, and I've said in my columns over the years, that Donald Trump is a reflection of this society. He is. He is not the cause of it. He is a reflection. And I think that when I saw that broken man, I saw the society at large. I think that this country, the populace, I think we're broken. I think that in the last few months, the things that this country has gone through, cataclysmic things, pandemic, economic collapse, impeachment, this continued controversy with the election, I really think it was just so striking to me. And even though I'm nonpartisan and very happy that at least his personage will be gone, my concern is that he may become a martyr, Kyle, because there was no repudiation of Donald Trump. I mean, we're days after the fact, still it was razor-thin margins. So that shows a deeply divided country. And with at least a 50-50 split, that agrees with his racist, sexist rhetoric. It's very possible that Donald Trump can become more powerful after he leaves the White House as a martyr than he was before. And I think that that's very disconcerting. Sorry to be a downer on your audio. Well, he may he may have. I don't even think he'll have a larger media platform. You can't beat being president of the United States in terms of being able to spread your message around. I I think he's going to be relegated to the right wing fringe, to the margins of society. I'm sure he'll continue yelping and whelping, but I think he's toast. (laughs) I'm a little more optimistic about this. And I think that it's going to be a sobering moment for a lot of people. I do too, Tom. But what I'm getting at is that the Republican Party has not repudiated him. Not yet. And give you know, give them a few weeks. Yeah, yeah give them a well, few that's weeks. True. They are They're, politicians. You know, <laughs> we're starting to see a few of them, you know, distance themselves. Roy Blunt, a senator from Missouri, came out and said, well, you know, you don't, you've got to have cut all the votes. You know, that's how we do it in America. You know, basically giving the back of the hand to Donald Trump. I think we're going to see more and more Republicans. Yeah, go for it. I, I want to ask you a quick question. You may recall that in 2008, when George uh, W. Bush left the White House the day of the inauguration, and when he left and Marine One was there, there was kind of this applause that he left. Because compared to Donald Trump, he had taken the country through nothing. But I was wondering if you could maybe wax, and I know my time's up, if you could tell me what you think that day's going to look like when Donald Trump takes his sorry bronze Agent Orange butt out of Washington for the last time, officially. <laughs> it's going to be the day that Louise and I break out a bottle of champagne. <laughs> My theory, you know, I've said this on the air a few times, is that he's probably going to resign a week before he leaves so that Mike Pence can pardon him and the entire Trump crime family without, you know, the issue of can a guy self-pardon going to the Supreme Court. Now, I might be wrong on that, but tax fraud is serious stuff. They put John Dillinger in prison for tax fraud, and you know he's so clearly and obviously guilty of it. New York State will probably still be coming after him, and that's why I think he may well leave the country. I think he's a serious flight risk. But, you know, you got 15 seconds. What do you think? 
I think you, I think you're hilarious and correct. Well, you know, keep in mind his wife and his son both have Slovenian citizenship or Slovakian. I forget which country they're from, yep. Slovenia or Slovakia. Yep. And so, you know, maybe he's got a nest all feathered someplace else. I don't know. Kenyatta, great to hear from you. It's been a while. Thanks for calling in. Good talking to you. Two other quick thoughts on the, uh, gee, how is this all working out front? Joe Biden issued this statement. The United States government is perfectly capable of escorting trespassers out of the White House. This was, he first said that back on July 19th, and he repeated it uh, recently, uh, number one. And number two, people are wondering, you know, why haven't the major networks called the election for Biden? When, you know, all the trend lines, it's fairly obvious. I mean, people are basically... Uh, even in the Biden camp, everybody is like, you know, dancing and, and breaking out champagne. But why haven't the networks called it? Well, you'll recall Fox News called Arizona for Biden before anybody else had. Then the Associated Press followed them. And, you know, even the New York Times never, never, you know, followed up on that, didn't, didn't follow through with that. In fact, I should check right. Yeah, the New York Times still to this moment, as we're speaking, has not called Arizona for Biden. But Fox News did. And that caused Donald Trump to call up Rupert Murdoch and yell and scream at him about, you know, what the hell is going on? And, you know, apparently very obscene and very loud, according to uh, at least one leak inside the White House. Now the news comes out that Rupert Murdoch informed, uh, whether it was on that phone call or earlier, uh, Rupert Murdoch informed Donald Trump that he had lost. Sorry, buddy, you're on the way out. Get used to it. And Trump, of course, didn't want to hear that message. He was very upset by that. But then what's interesting is that apparently on Wednesday, Murdoch called Mitch McConnell. There are multiple news reports of this. And said to Mitch McConnell, don't feed his conspiracy theories. He's toast. He's on his way out. And so what did McConnell do? He went in front of the microphones and he said, claiming you've won the election is different from finishing the counting. Which is basically Murdoch's message. Which brings us to my theory. I mean, this is a long setup, I suppose. But my theory is that all of the networks are waiting for Fox to call this because Fox has the greatest credibility to call the election for Biden right now given that Fox has been the cheerleader for Trump for five years. Now, I might be wrong on that. We'll only know in retrospect. But if Fox calls it for Biden, and then two minutes later, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN all flip and call it for Biden, then you'll know that I was right. And that this is about the media trying to, uh, number one, have maximum impact, uh, number two, be in an absolutely bulletproof position. And part of that bulletproof position, that's probably a bad metaphor given the context of what we're talking about. But part of that, that unassailable position is, hey, Fox did it first. You know, you're, you're really, really going to say that we're the fake news and that we're just making this stuff up? Fox did it first. So we'll see. We'll see. Lou in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Lou, what's on your mind? Hello, Tom. About calling for Arizona and Fox, mm -hmm. you know, um, the AP and Fox simultaneously called Arizona for Biden a couple of days ago. 
Right. And then the AP uh, retracted, but just today did call it for Arizona. So I think that they, Fox... Yeah, back to it. I think Fox goes by the way of what the Associated Press reports. But here's my question, Tom. Actually, before you get to your question, Lou, that's not what happens at Fox. They they actually have a team of people who are polling experts and who are election experts. Each one of the networks does. And they comb through all the numbers and come to their conclusions independently. I had read that AP followed Fox in a short period of time, but that the AP had followed Fox. Um, if you're suggesting that Fox followed AP, I'd be skeptical, but it's, it's not impossible. Anyhow, back to you, Lou. What, what was your question? Yes, here's my question and why I'm calling. Uh, who becomes the leader of the Senate if the composition of the Senate becomes 50-50? If Joe Biden is president, the leader of the Senate would be Chuck Schumer or whoever the Democrats elect, because the tie-breaking vote is the vice president. So whichever party the vice president holds, if you've got a Senate 50-50, that's the party that's going to control the Senate. Oh, well, that's good. Because that yeah, will be determined. Yeah. In fact, in the Constitution, on, the vice president's only official job is president of the Senate, which means that the vice president. In fact, this was the argument that they tried to make during the Bush administration. Um, uh, I forget the context. It was something about uh, Dick, you know, Dick Cheney's role in things. Uh, there was some kerfuffle, and uh, they said, "Well, Dick Cheney's not actually part." Of oh, I remember. They were trying to hide information. The executive branch was trying to hide information about things that Dick Cheney was doing. Um, in terms of, you know, lying us into the war and stuff like that. And uh, the White House said, we don't have to release this information because Dick Cheney is not part of the executive branch. He's part of the legislative branch. You're sending the subpoena to the wrong people. He's, his only job in the, in the Constitution is president of the Senate. Anyhow, back to you, Luke. Forgive them. As you know, on January 5th, there'll be uh, recall elections for the two candidates for uh, Senate in Georgia. So that's when we'll find out the composition of the Senate. Right, not recall runoff. But yes, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, get ready to, to watch just an absolute avalanche of cash being poured into Georgia. Oh, yeah. It's going to get real, real interesting. Lou, thank you for the call. Andy in Minneapolis. Hey, Andy, what's up? Hey, uh, hey Tom. Four years ago, around the time you know, Trump got elected the first time, my mom passed away. And then I also had a Tibetan friend who his mother-in-law passed away and they had a ritual and you know tibetans are you know more in the buddhist bucket of, of religion mm-hmm. and basically what they do is they do a ceremony after 49 days after death where they have you know they light a whole bunch of candles and that apparently in their culture and that religion and the, what, the, what my interpretation of what i was told is is it's more like the end of the transition period from death to a better life well, 49 days mm-hmm. ago from today, according to what I typed in Google, at least what spits out, out, out to me, it's when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And it makes me think that, really? you know, when she had her one last dying wish of, hey, I want my seat taken, you know, or excuse me, my, my seat replaced after the election, and basically right. Trump went against that, maybe that is some sort of spiritual thing that, Maybe it's been trolling with COVID, with Trump getting COVID and all his White House people. Maybe it has something to do with how the election is going. Oh, he's just, just he's spiraling out of control. And then here's day 49, last day. We might have a winner, a parent winner with Biden. So it's just ironic that knowing that culture of 49 days after death and then here 49 days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we might have a 
pretty much clear apparent winner with Biden. So that's my point. That's that's fascinating. That's and I believe that they pray every seven days too. Um, I, I don't, I'm not in the religion. Yeah. I don't practice it, but at least that's my understanding yeah. that some do practice every weeks. seven days. Two forty nine. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I, I yeah. you know, it's it's worth worth scratching your head about. Blue in uh, Santa Cruz, California. Hey, Blue, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, well, you know, let's change the subject and look at the bigger picture. The word is intolerance. You know, so a third of the country is non-white. We're intolerant of them, but we're intolerant of, uh, well, I'm going to talk about women. You know, like uh, from page one of the Bible, it says that the men are uh, superior to the women. Etc. Etc. And we pretty much uh, treated them pretty badly this whole time. Now, here in America, we've only hated the uh, non-whites for about a few hundred years, but men have pretty much had their knee on the neck of women since page one of the Bible. You know. Sure. So. A um, hundred years ago, we let the women vote with the understanding that you're going to vote with your husband. You know, okay, a hundred years later, if you're a woman, you want to vote, well, you got to join one of the two good old boys club parties. And if you want to run for office, still, you got to join one of the good old boys clubs parties. And then if you're a woman and you win... Your co-workers, your male co-workers, tell you you're despicable to your face in public. So the women have been demanding equal rights, demanding equal pay my whole life when I'm an old guy. So we talk about racism. I talk about intolerance. My big question is, women, if the men have had their knee on your neck since page one of the Bible, how could you possibly be racist? How can that be? Uh, so, anybody yeah, who wants a, to that's answer a, that's that. That's a tough one. Why are women voting for Trump? It's a really tough one. Blue, thank you. Louise and I watched Thunderball, the James Bond movie, in, in memory of uh, Sean Connery. 14 minutes in, he sexually assaults a woman and then blackmails her into having sex with him. Honest to God, Thunderball. It was made in the 1960s. I mean, that was acceptable behavior then. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'm yelling at Louise while we're watching the movie. He's acting like Harvey Weinstein. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading today from Truth in Our Times by David E. McCraw, Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times, the number two lawyer for the New York Times. This is in chapter one, titled Election Day. It opens with a tweet from Donald Trump. The failing New York Times has been wrong about me from the very beginning. Said I would lose the primaries on the general election. Fake news. November 8, 2016. At 10 p.m., I made one last circuit of the newsroom. Our CEO, Mark Thompson, stood near the political desk, looking on with his wife and a small group of others connected somehow to the Times. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan remained in doubt, but the reality was sinking in. Donald Trump was on the verge of winning the American presidency. I'd been in newsrooms on election nights before. I know how it's supposed to be. The only thing that ever mattered was the horse race, think Gore Bush, or the historic moment, think Obama-McCain. There was no investment in which candidate was winning. He or she was destined to disappoint in the long run. And the dominant emotion was a certain not-quite-cynical detachment amid the electric buzz of the vote count and projections and the anticipation of relief that the endless push of the campaign was finally over. Sure, you couldn't ignore the victories or the big-picture moments, and the day-after stories would be celebratory in their way, duly restrained but with a nod to victory itself, not unlike the next-day account of a Super Bowl game or Game 7 of the World Series. Capture the triumph for a night or relish the race too close to call. Leave the dancing and crying for others, for the believers. But this night was like no other election night. There had been an investment, not just journalistic, but spiritual. Donald Trump had campaigned not just against Hillary Clinton, but also against the New York Times and the American press, the mainstream American press. And his astonishing rise to the top of the Republican Party had been built on his near-daily attacks on facts, on the very idea that facts matter. For journalists who approach truth like a secular religion and who have seen a thousand times before how a single true story could gut the political career of a lying politician, it had been a year of faith-shaking disbelief. A line had not just been crossed, but obliterated. The shock was palpable as the numbers came in, laced for some with the fading hope for a different outcome among people who generally wanted nothing more than a story worth telling. And there was still a paper to put out, a reckoning to account for. It was too much on an already long night. I slipped away. At the elevators, I ran into Sue Craig and a guy who was obviously not from the Times, Sue had broken one of the biggest stories of the campaign. She was the one who went to her mailbox one day in September and found pages from Donald Trump's tax returns in an envelope. She introduced me to her acquaintance. He had once worked for Trump. I didn't ask why he was there. Like me, Sue had decided to get away. It's too weird here, she said. We all got on the elevator. Sue, who had written a devastating story about Trump, me, whose letter to Trump's lawyers had lit up the Internet for a week in October, and one of Trump's guys. We rode in silence, a strange tableau on the strangest night of the year. Fourteen hours earlier, as I came into the building, the Times security guard had called me over. They wanted to make sure I knew about the plans for the next morning. In the quirky ways that things happened at the Times, I had become the lawyer to see for all the things that security guys encountered, from the intruder who pilfered women's shoes to the anonymous letter weaponized with the razor blades. The Times was printing thousands of extra newspapers, and tables were going to be set up outside for all the people who would be showing up to buy the New York Times for posterity's sake. The headline, I later learned, was going to read, Madam President. <clears throat> We'd been caught flat-footed eight years earlier when Barack Obama had made history. By the time I arrived for work early in the morning of the 2008 election, the line was already starting to snake down the sidewalk. 
Soon there were hundreds of Obama supporters who thought, and why wouldn't they, that the place to buy a copy of the New York Times was surely at the New York Times. Lots of things happened at the Times building. Selling newspapers is not one of them. Employees were pressed into emergency duty to cart bundles of newspapers from the Times printing plant in Queens, and the long lines outside the building stretched on into the afternoon. But it was Obama's victory in 2012 that was on my mind this morning. I vote in a neighborhood that is predominantly black and middle class. In 2012, following a drumbeat of stories about how Republicans hoped to suppress voter turnout, I walked into my polling place at a local school eight minutes after it opened. The line already extended back to the schoolhouse door. Did y'all sleep here, a guy wanted to know as he stepped into the foyer? On this morning in 2016, I had arrived before dawn. I was the only one in line at my precinct's table. That all seemed like a strangely distant memory as midnight approached. I had made my escape from the building with Sue and the Trump guy. At home, I sat alone in the glow of the TV screens as the states that mattered fell into place for the Republicans. I turned it off. Donald Trump was about to become president of the United States. The next morning, in a light drizzle on a gray November day, the newspaper sales tables were set up outside the building as planned. No one stopped. The vendors sat idly amid the stacks. There was no Madam President front page. Instead, the headline read, Trump triumphs. And the first two paragraphs of the lead story talked about how the vote threatened convulsions throughout the country and made an early mention of those who had watched with alarm the rise of Trump. Truth in Our Times by David McCraw. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Greg Palast on Twitter. Greg tweeted, this election would be over if it wasn't for the purge. 340,134 Georgians illegally purged before the 2018 midterms. 198,351 Georgians illegally purged before election 2020. Wow, you put those two numbers together, and that's a half a million Georgians who have been removed. People in Georgia, citizens of the state of Georgia. Now, these are the numbers of the people that Greg is saying illegally because he hired the firm that the post office uses to verify that people actually live where they say they live, where they're registered and all that kind of thing. 340,143 Georgians and, you know, the 198,351 Georgians. Pretty amazing stuff. It's, in fact, very amazing stuff. How's that going to play out? I don't know. We'll see. Meanwhile, 800,000, ProPublica is reporting on this, more than 800,000 people with phone numbers tied to six presidential swing states have been targeted with automated phone calls on Tuesday, suggesting that they remain at home on Election Day, a tactic that has alarmed voters. This is by Jack Gillum from ProPublica and Jeremy Merrill, suggesting that they remain home on Election Day. There's actually, I didn't realize this, there's a company called Teltech. They've got an app that they sell that, you know, they advertise on TV. You can put it on your phone. I think it's called RoboKiller. And what this app does is, it's, you know, it, it accesses a database on the Internet of where these robocalls are coming from. The company keeps track of it. And when they detect robocalls, when people report robocalls, then across the system, they start ignoring those numbers, but they catch the calls. And so they know how many robocalls are being made from where about what at any given moment. And they said that on election day, more than three million calls were made across the, to people across the country on Tuesday saying, stay safe and stay home. And 800,000 of those calls, 
or just a little less than a third of them, just went into half a dozen or so of the swing states. In other words, this is clearly voter suppression and attempt at voter suppression. I don't know how you could call it anything else other than that. It's just, it's, it's just so wrong, right? I mean, it's just, it is just so very, very wrong. They're trying to figure out who was behind this. New York Attorney General Letitia James, she tweeted on Tuesday afternoon, attempts to hinder voters from casting ballots by spreading misinformation is illegal and will not be tolerated. That's why I am actively investigating robocalls allegedly spreading disinformation. So, you know, we'll see where this one goes. There's a new study out. This, the Associated Press compiled this information that shows that in 376 counties with the highest number of new cases of coronavirus per capita. In other words, the 376 counties in the United States where the virus is exploding the most rapidly, 93% of those counties voted for Trump. Which it may not prove causation, it certainly is certainly evidence of correlation, but I think it's strong evidence of causation. 36% of Trump voters described the panic as completely or mostly under control, and 47% said it was somewhat under control. So among Trump voters, 36 plus 47 is 83% of Trump voters, according to this, this survey that was done by the Associated Press, 83% of Trump voters believe that the coronavirus is under control or nearly under control. Whereas 82% of Biden voters say that the Trump virus, the coronavirus, is not at all under control. So it shouldn't surprise us that when you do an analysis of the 376 counties with the highest rates of infection in the United States right now, 93% of those counties went for Trump. And probably the other 7% were within a point or two of going for Trump. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing I don't have that number here. But what we do know is that the pandemic is considered to be under control by voters, by 60% of Alabama voters, by 54% of Missouri voters, by 58% of Mississippi voters, 55% of the voters in Kentucky say, yeah, the coronavirus, it's under control, there's no problem. 55% of the voters in Texas say the coronavirus is under control, there's no problem. 56% in Tennessee, 56% in South Carolina. I mean, this, this, is, this is something. This is really something. Alan in Vancouver, Canada. Hey, Alan, what's up? been a listener for about 17 years. I just want to pass this on to you. For the last 100 years, no Republican has been elected on November the 3rd. But FDR, LBJ, Carter, Clinton, and now Biden all elected on November the 3rd. Really? Yes. Wow. This is because Election Day you know, moves around depending on which, which Tuesday is the first Tuesday after the first or after the first Monday in November, I, I think it is. Yeah, that's, that's amazing, Alan. What a great bit of trivia. Thank you for sharing that. What Trump is trying to do, he's trying to go into federal and state courts as well and stop the vote count in any state where he's ahead so far and the mail-in ballots are coming in showing that he's losing. Um, and that would be in Nevada, North Carolina, Georgia, 
Michigan, Wisconsin. Now they're contesting. I mean, you know, he's just he's throwing legal stuff at everything he can in a desperate attempt to stay in the White House so he doesn't go to prison um, and, and, you know, and lose his little empire. He, he gambled the whole thing and he won for four years. And now I think he's losing. The mail is coming in slowly because Louis DeJoy disabled over 600 high-speed sorting machines that can sort 40,000 pieces of mail a minute. And now that's all having to be done by hand. And so you've got on-time delivery around 50, 60% in some places. The Constitution basically doesn't say anything about elections other than that it's up to the states. And so because it's up to the states, you have some states, typically states controlled by Democrats, who are doing everything they can to make it easier for people to vote and convenient for people to vote because they believe in democracy and they want a lot of people to vote. You've got other states mostly controlled by Republicans that go out of their way to purge their, their voter rolls and make it really, really hard to vote and have you jump through lots and lots of hoops to be eligible to vote or to vote on voting day and will challenge your vote when your vote comes in. That's the fundamental difference, Ray. I think we need national standards for voting, frankly. We've got one small national standard for voting. That was the Motor Voter Act back in 1993. The Republicans fought it tooth and nail. But basically what it does is when you get your driver's license, if you can prove your citizenship at the time you get your driver's license, you're automatically enrolled to vote. And states, again, that was optional for states. They passed it legally all across the country. But we need, we need rigorous federal standards. Ray, thanks a lot for the call. Thanks for listening to WCPT. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.